Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Ezekiel 12 through 17, who can tell us what page that is? 1075. Gosh, I thought we were on like 1076 last week. Did we go backwards? We were on like 1072 last week, oh. I think. Oh, that's crazy. We did like three chapters and got... Oh. 1070, I guess, or 1071 if we start with the week. So when I ask what page number we're on, it doesn't it doesn't feel like we got very far. I'm going to stop asking. So where are we? We're on 1076. No, 1075. (laughs) I don't know why I got 1076 in my head. It's 1075, starting with Ezekiel 12. Sorry, 1075, Ezekiel 12. Uh, who remembers anything about last week and would like to remind us all what Ezekiel 8 through 11 was about? Oh, tell us. What's that? Just tell us. Don't make us remember. Oh. <laughs> Oh, Meredith's going to watch this recording and go, see, without me, nobody uh, reviews what happened the week before. Um, so Ezekiel 8 through 11, remember, was the big uh, vision where he took him to Jerusalem and he showed him the four abominations that were going on. And he kind of was helping Ezekiel understand why judgment was really necessary, um, what a big deal it was, how terrible things were. Um, and then, uh, but then he also talked to Ezekiel about how he would he put it, remember, he had the angel go out and put a mark on the foreheads of all the people that he was going to spare. Um, anybody who kind of had any sense of remorse about what was happening. And, um, and then after all of that vision, he tells Ezekiel to share it with the elders who are sitting in his house, um, that, it, that it's really for the exiles, as always. So that's what happened in 8 through 11. It's this big, you know, experiential vision that Ezekiel has. And in a lot of ways, it's the first of several objections that God's going to kind of answer through Ezekiel, the objections as to why should God judge them. So the, the first objection kind of comes from Ezekiel himself. He's, he's really kind of wondering, is it really that bad? Is it really necessary, God, that you judge us? So, I mean, we're already in exile. Do you really have to kind of complete it and destroy the temple and destroy the city? And, you know, is it that bad? And so the first answer to that is God takes Ezekiel there and shows him it is indeed that bad. And the second objection is Ezekiel says, well, are you going to kill everybody? And the answer to that is no, I'm not. God says, you know, we've marked some, I've sent the angels out to mark. I'll be fair about it. You'll see that. Um, And so that's the beginning. And then through the next 12 chapters, really, God continues to kind of answer various objections to why, why it's appropriate for God to judge them. You know, the objections being, you know, well, maybe it's not fair or, you know, why, you know, maybe it's not worth it, whatever the cases are, he's kind of going to go through and answer some more of the objections. So in some ways, even though the the vision of going to Jerusalem is over, now we're going to move on to some more, some more objections through the next 12 chapters. And then throughout it all, we're going to see some of the same kind of object lessons and illustrations that, um, uh, that we've seen all along. And I think chapter 12 starts with one, if I remember correctly. So let's jump right in. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. So even, even Ezekiel in the exile, remember 
there's there's Jeremiah and there's Ezekiel. And just a quick reminder, they're both preaching largely the same message. Their message is for both of them is we're not going back to Jerusalem anytime soon. Settle in, accept the judgment of God, and and even enjoy the graciousness of God to make us profitable even in the judgment, which he can do. But we're not going to be in our homeland. We're not going to be able to worship the way we've worshiped before. We're going to have to find other ways to respond to the glory of God here. But for Jeremiah, he's preaching that to the people still in Jerusalem. So it's much harder for them because his, his preaching is that you're, they're not coming back and the judgment's going to be completed here. There's going to be complete destruction here. For Ezekiel, it's a little bit more of a hopeful message because for the people who are in exile, it's, it's really a settle in and enjoy the grace of God and the profit that he's going to bring you while you're here. And so it's the same message, but kind of from two different ends. But even for Ezekiel, even as he preaches to the exiles, he's still surrounded by this, this, these prophets who are, you know, who are teaching that it is going to be over soon and that they should be prepared to move back out of Babylon quickly. Don't settle in. They're preaching exactly the opposite thing that God is telling them. Um, and, and then some of them just continue to still be rebellious. And so in that sense, there's still some of this message from God. And so God says, you're surrounded by people. They're not hearing. They're not seeing. And God's answer through Ezekiel, whenever he's feeling that way about the people, is to do a demonstration, is to have Ezekiel do something to kind of spark their interest, cause them to ask questions so that they'll be more likely to listen. So that's what he says. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are rebellious people. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile. Now, this one kind of makes me laugh because it's just such a, an absurd picture. Ezekiel's already in exile, but God wants him to pretend that he's being exiled from the exile. He wants him to sort of act out what they've all already experienced. So this is what he tells them. Son of man, pack your belongings for exile, and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go from where you are to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are rebellious people. During the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings packed for exile. Then in the evening, while they are watching, go out like those who go into exile. While they watch, dig through the wall and take your belongings out through it. So it's kind of like, he doesn't even, he says, go somewhere to another place. He doesn't even tell them where, but he says, make sure that when you go, you dig through a wall. Now, presumably there's no reason to dig through this wall. He's not actually escaping anywhere or, or having to run anywhere. But so here's this picture of, of, of Ezekiel making a big demonstration of it. That's the whole point that he keeps saying, do it while people are watching. He's clearly supposed to do, it's another performance art. So he's supposed to gather all his belongings, put it in a bag. Probably this is something very similar to what they all did when they were exiled. They probably were recognizing what he's doing. He's probably repeating what they've already all done. Pack it all in a bag, then go find a wall and dig through the wall, which just, again, the effort of finding a, a random wall and digging through it, even though it's not keeping you in, um, it's going to draw attention and clearly it's supposed to. This is why I call him Crazy Zeke, not because he really is crazy, but he must have looked that way to them an awful lot of the time. While they watch, dig through the wall and take your belongings out through it. Put them on your shoulder as they are watching and carry them out at dusk. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the Israelites. That is sort of a, a summary of Ezekiel's prophecy. He is just over and over a sign himself to the Israelites. So I did as I was commanded. During the day, I brought up my things packed for exile. Then in the evening, I dug through the wall with my hands. I took my belongings out at dusk, carrying them on my shoulders while they watched. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, did not the Israelites, that rebellious people, ask you, what are you doing? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This prophecy concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the Israelites who are there. Say to them, I am assigned to you. 
as I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile as captives. The prince among them will put his things on his shoulder at dusk and leave, and a hole will be dug in the wall for him to go through. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it, and there he will die. I will scatter to the winds all those around him, his staff and all his troops, and I will pursue them with drawn sword. They will know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine, and plague, so that in the nations where they go, they may acknowledge all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So again, it's the same message that the people in Jerusalem, they're not going to live. They're not going to survive this. They're going to be judged too. The prince, the ruler, the king, Zedekiah himself is going to end up having to dig a hole through the wall, but he's still not going to live. He's going to end up dying in Babylon. And so I want you to show this to everybody. I want them to see that the judgment is still going on. They're not going back to Jerusalem. It's going to be the other way around. The prince is going to come to you. And he says twice, they will know that I am the Lord. And it's a reminder. What's the purpose of this judgment? It's, to, it's so that people know that God is the God who is not, you know, that, that the Israelites were doing whatever they wanted. And the whole point of the covenant was you're going to do the things that I think are important. And that way, when people look at you, they'll know the kind of God I am. That I'm the kind of kind of God who who is uh, likes honesty and likes uh, compassion and likes uh, you know looking out for the underdog and who is in favor of sexual purity and who is a jealous God that only has you only can worship me and you know these are all things that are characteristic of who I am and so I want you to live that way so that people will know that's the kind of God I am but they don't and so he says now as I judge you people will now know that's the kind of God I am that I'm not, I'm the kind of guy who is the opposite of everything you're doing right now. And also you yourself will know that I am the Lord. You'll remember that I am your God and that I'm in control. And that when the Babylonians capture the prince, it's my net that's being spread out, not the Babylonians net. So David, at this time, uh, Zedekiah is still in Jerusalem. So this is yes. early on in the prophecy or is his time of... Uh, yeah, we haven't yet reached the point in history where the temple's been destroyed and Zedekiah has been taken okay. out of Jerusalem. Right now, Zedekiah is a puppet of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're actually going to see later that, that God is going to say, you know, you're really silly, Zedekiah, because you, you've got this plush job. I just made you a puppet for Babylon. If you would just settle in and accept the judgment, you might even survive this. But Zedekiah refuses to and tries to get out of it. Um, and God actually holds him account for that, which we'll see that in a little bit later. I think we'll get there tonight. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Now, this is Ezekiel. This is not God just saying, think of these things. This is, this is another command of a performance art that he wants Ezekiel to do. So imagine Ezekiel in full view of as many people as possible that when he eats, he shudders and he shakes and he, and he looks afraid. You know, he does everything he can to reflect this kind of fear as he eats. I think he's, God's literally telling him, do this as you eat so people will see and people will ask. Say to the people of the land, this is what the sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair, for the land will be stripped of everything in it because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited towns will be laid waste and the land will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I think part of this is the contrast again. Here they are in exile. It's not great, but in fact, there's, there's more ability to eat and drink without this fear. Because when Ezekiel eats and drinks with this kind of fear and anxiety, they're like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, well, that's what it's like in Jerusalem. 
right? Here you are thinking you want to go back to Jerusalem, but that's how it is there. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. So apparently there is this proverb. It's happening in Israel right now. And it's that people say the days go by and every vision comes to nothing. The point being that prophecy itself has become in, in disrepute, right? That, that the idea of any prophecy coming true, people just dis disregard it. And you can kind of understand how this happens. We're going to get into this in a second. But the problem is the prophets don't agree. And it's easier sometimes to simply say, well, you know, I don't know who to believe. So I'm just going to decide none of it's real. I think we, we do the same thing. And I'm not comparing this because, frankly, what you decide to do about, about this other example is up to you and not as big a deal as prophecy. But we do the same thing with politics, right? It's easy to say, you know, somebody will say, well, this politician says that. And someone will argue, yeah, but this politician says that. And sometimes the easiest answer is simply to throw up your hands and say, well, they're all a bunch of liars, so I'm just not going to listen to any of them. And I think that feeling is kind of the feeling that they're having of prophets. They're like, well, Ezekiel says, you know, Jeremiah says, and then Haniah says, and people are just like, well, you know what? None, nothing happens. People have been prophesying forever. You know, we're still here. Things are still happening. There's, there's nothing going to happen. You can't count on these prophecies. So rather than discerning who's true and who's not, <laughs> they're simply just decided that God doesn't speak anymore that he's not really involved. And this is kind of the next objection to this idea of, of judgment, that they're like, well, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's happened, which again, in itself is a weird thing to say, because a lot has happened, right? I mean, they could actually look at the track record of Jeremiah and decide that Jeremiah has been spot on, but they're still there. You know, they're still in Jerusalem. They haven't died yet, some of them, the few that are there. So it's easy to kind of just say, ah, I don't, I don't know who to trust, so I'm not going to trust any of them. It's just God isn't speaking. But God says this, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to put an end to this proverb. They will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled. For there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But the Lord will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious people, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the Israelites are saying, the vision he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies about the distant future. Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. Here's the difficulty. You have the prophets who are saying that everything's going to get better, and they're saying it's going to happen relatively soon. And then you have Jeremiah, who has been for years prophesying that judgment is coming and that complete judgment is coming, and that the temple will be destroyed. And so they're saying, Jeremiah always talks about things that are so far off. They're never going to happen. It's not going to happen. And these other guys, they keep talking about things that are going to happen soon, and those things don't really happen. So we just think they're all wrong. And so God is saying, I understand, because of my patience, because of my delay, because the time hasn't yet come, people have stopped listening. Well, you tell them they're living in the time when this fulfillment is going to happen that they're going to very soon know which prophets are accurate and which ones aren't because it's going to be really clear. And they're, everything, it's all going to be fulfilled. You know, it's kind of been a slow fulfillment. And again, if they, had, if they were watching, if they could see, if they could hear, they would already know that Ezekiel and Jeremiah have been proved accurate. But they're not listening. They don't want to see. They don't want to hear. So God is saying, it's okay. I understand it's been partial. I just want you to know it's going to happen. Don't discount it. Don't say, ah, there's a lot of talk and nothing ever happens. It's happening. It's happening in your lifetime. It's happening soon. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He is going to take Zedekiah. 
He is going to destroy the city. He is going to destroy the temple. So that's chapter 12. So kind of the objection that's being answered there is just the idea that, that God talks a lot, but nothing ever happens. And he's saying, it's, it's coming. It's happening. It's happening soon. Um, Ezekiel 13, he goes on, actually, it's kind of the similar approach. So we'll, we'll go through this and then I'll pause and let you, and I, although you can always raise your hand if you have a question or just yell at me either way. But Ezekiel 13, God is going to go on and answer that, that the other problem is, again, they're just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that instead of deciding all prophecy is nonsense, maybe what they should do is pay attention to which prophecy really is nonsense and which prophecy seems to really bear out because God is speaking to them and they could learn if they wanted to learn. And this is what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaches in the wall to repair it for the people of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations are a lie. I think when he talks about repairing the breaches, what he's saying is you keep preaching things you're going to get better, but you're not prophesying anything that will make things better. You're not prophesying for repentance. You're not, you're not pointing out the reasons judgment is coming. You're not pointing out what, what it would mean to return to God. You're not, you're not doing anything to repair the breach. You're just pretending the breach isn't there. And that's not very good responsibility for your job. Even though the Lord has not sent them, they say the Lord declares and expect him to fulfill their words. I, I think there's an interesting point here. It's, it's a really self-deception thing. Not only are they saying things God didn't say, but they've now worked themselves into a state where they kind of expect that God is obligated to do what they say, even though he didn't tell them that. It's like, I'm going to say these things and he's going to make it happen. And it is very similar to this, this really heretical offshoot um, of the, the church today, which says it's all about manifesting. It says that if you just believe it hard enough, prophesy it strongly enough and never back down, then it's going to come true, that, you're, that, that God is obligated to do it because they mistakenly call this, this idea faith. But I think God is pointing out here, that's not faith. Faith is hearing from God and doing what God asks you to do. Faith is not coming up with something in your own imagination and then declaring it and then expecting God to fulfill it. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, declares the sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. I think it's fascinating that we know nothing about these false prophets. The only false prophet's name we know in, in recent passages is Hananiah. And the rest of them, we don't even know their names. They're just called false prophets. And then he says here, there's not going to be record of them. I think it's sort of literally true. It's like they just pass into obscurity. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord because they lead my people astray saying peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it's going to fall. So they build these walls that are full of holes and they aren't stable and they aren't going to stand, but then they make them look real pretty. You know, they, they kind of dress them up so that people think they're strong and stable, but in fact, they're just going to fall. Rain will come in torrents and I will send hailstones hurtling down and the violent winds will burst forth. And when the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where's the whitewash you covered it with? 
Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger, hailstorms and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will pour out my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it, these prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on all their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to ensnare the people. Will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. By lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died and have spared those who should not live. Uh, we got Jolene coming in. So what's happening here is he's, he's, he's moved on from the general prophets. Now he's talking about there's apparently some specific group of women. And I don't think this is anything about specifically, I mean, he's, he's certainly been railing on the male prophets. It's fair to rail on the female ones as well. But I think there's some sort of specific group. We don't know the details, but apparently there's something about charms and scarves. And I think there's something sort of witchcrafty about all of this that, that is part of their prophecy. And so I think it's probably a particular sect, a particular religion. Um, which probably has nothing to do with Judaism, but some particular group of, of uh, religious cult of women who are also prophesying like these other male prophets who pretend to be of God. These don't declare they speak for God, but they do declare they speak truth and they declare they have power in their bracelets and their scarves. And of course they don't have any power. And he's saying, you're leading people astray. You're leading to people's death. You're, you're declaring people who are innocent, guilty, and people who are guilty, innocent, and it's causing problems. People are dying when they shouldn't, and people are living when they shouldn't. Um, so again, he's just kind of leaning into all of it and saying, look, it's either right or it's wrong. And if it's wrong, it's really wrong. And if it's right, you should pay attention. Welcome, Jolene. Glad you could join us. Hi, everyone. Hello. We are on Ezekiel uh, 13. Anybody know what verse we're actually on? I don't have the verse references, but maybe so she can jump in there few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. Where's that? Or actually right after that. Lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should not have died and have spared those who should not live. Verse 19. Verse 19. So 13, 19. Okay, thank you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms with which you ensnare people like birds and I will tear them from your arms. I will set free the people that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands and they will no longer fall prey to your power then you will know that I am the Lord because you disheartened the righteous with your lies when I had brought them no grief and because you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and so save their lives. Therefore, you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will save my people from your hands and then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, any comments on 12 and 13? Any questions, comments, or thoughts? cheerful passage. Not a cheerful passage. All right. Ezekiel 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. So now we're in this situation. We saw this before. Before he went on his vision, 
in 8 through 11, the elders had come to his house. So he has a certain degree of respect. He has a house. Jeremiah is, is I think, has a much tougher position in terms of just where he happens to be. He has no honor. He has no authority. Um, for, he, he may have a house or he may live with the potter. Um, but, but Ezekiel seems to have a little bit of respect, a little bit of comfort. The elders come to him for advice. But as we're going to see, even the elders who come for advice, they're not they're, they're a little fickle and finicky themselves. And that's what we're about to see here is God's about to lay into them a little bit, uh, even in the uh, exile. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men, so these elders, have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let of them inquire of me at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them. Before we go on, I want to point out kind of the, 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 the humor of this position of what God just said. He said, these guys, they don't worship me. They worship idols. I shouldn't even talk to them. And then what does he say right after that? Here's what I want you to tell them. So even though he's like, they, they deserve nothing from me, there's no reason I should respond to them at all. He's still going to, he's still going to try. He's still going to speak through Ezekiel to them. But what he's going to tell them is what they need, but probably not what they came for. Um, he's like, if they want to know what I'm thinking, they should buckle up because I'm going to tell them what I'm thinking. All right. Therefore, speak to them and tell them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I love the general nature of this, right? He's like, here's these people. They have stumbling blocks and idols and they come to you, a prophet, and they're asking for words. So what I want you to tell them is just tell them this. Whenever anybody who has stumbling blocks and idols comes to a prophet to ask him for words, here's the words they're going to get. It's almost like God is about to lay into them, but he's pretending, you know, it's like when someone says, I'm asking for a friend, right? And then he's pretending, okay, so tell your friend this, but he knows he's really talking directly to them, but he's doing it in a, I don't know, sort of around the corner way. I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So he's telling the elders, this is what I would say to people who came to me who weren't really worshiping me. But he knows that they are these people. But he's going he's gonna to give them a chance to hear the message without perhaps, I suppose, feeling directly attacked. But if they're paying attention at all, they'll know it's them. Repent, turn from your idols, and renounce all your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me, which again is what the elders just did, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy... I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. Now, this is a weird moment, too. I think here we have a little shift. So I think he's talking about they're coming to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's going to share with them that they need to repent and not be idols. But I think he's also saying if they go see another prophet, and that prophet is enticed to say what they want him to say, God is now saying this really weird thing. He's saying that I then they should understand that it's me that is causing this prophet to speak what they want to hear for their destruction and for the prophet's destruction. It's very complicated. It's sort of a chess move upon a chess move. But the point I think he's making here is that 
When you go to the right prophets, they're going to tell you to repent of your idolatry. When you go to false prophets, they're going to encourage your idolatry. And you should understand that when you do that, I am allowing that to happen because it's just like giving you enough rope to hang yourself with. It's just, it's just letting you go where you want to go, but understand I'm not missing. I'm not absent from this. I'm allowing it. I'm even encouraging it because judgment needs to come to that prophet and to you, which means they really have a choice and that they can keep coming to Ezekiel, even though what he tells them is not encouraging to them because he's telling them to repent, or they can stop going to Ezekiel and go to false prophets where they'll hear better things, but they should realize they're just securing their judgment when they do that. I think that's kind of the point he's making here. They will bear their guilt, and the prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. The point of all this is to bring them back. The point of all this is to have them be his people and him be their God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it, to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. He's actually going to use this, this, trip, this triumvirate a few times in these prophecies where he's going to mention Noah, Daniel, and Job. And this, it's three interesting people to select. And his point here, he's going to make slightly different points each time he brings them up, but his point here is that you can't count on someone else's righteousness to save you. Now, in the gospel, that's exactly what we do. But at this moment, for them, with Noah and Daniel and Job, you can't count on their faithfulness. Even if they were here in Jerusalem right now, they can't save everybody else. They can't present, prevent everybody else from being judged. People need to, make, need to respond to me. There's a, there's a personal responsibility and a personal accountability here. Um, but it's interesting that he chooses Noah and Daniel and Job. There's a lot of people he could have chosen. And so if you think it through a little bit, there's a couple of things that are true of all three of them. All three of them have something to do with judgment. With Job, it's a little bit less clear because the, the scripture kind of says he wasn't really being judged. That's part of the whole point is that there isn't really an answer to what was happening to him. But they're all experiencing suffering. And in the case of Noah, it absolutely had to do with judgment because the whole world is about to be destroyed. In the case of Daniel, it absolutely has to do with judgment because he's been taken into Babylon. Fascinating that he has risen in the ranks and we already know he has, we read that part of the story. He's already risen in the ranks. He's already a household name among Israelites. They know who Daniel is because he is very important to Nebuchadnezzar. He's right up there at the top. Um, so he is already an example that people can look to. So they're all about suffering and they're all about their response in suffering to trust God at those moments. And so that is the same for all the Israelites right now. They're all undergoing judgment. They're all undergoing suffering. The question is, are they going to be the Noahs, the Daniels, and the Jobs in this suffering? Or are they going to be, you know, the people that don't? Are they going to, the, the unnamed people that just get judged because they aren't responding to God in the process? The other thing that's interesting about these is that two of them aren't Israelites. You can't call uh, Noah an Israelite because, um, because the, even the term Semitic comes from his son, Shem. So I suppose you can. He sort of predates them. But it's weird to think of him as an Israelite. He's certainly never been in Israel. And Job may be a Gentile. For all we know, Job, it appears when you read through Job that he isn't even a Jew. He doesn't come, you know, again, he's too early 
perhaps, possibly, he may predate Abraham. But if he comes after Abraham, he certainly seems to be a Gentile. So we have this example here. Two of them aren't even Israelites. They're people that, again, if your pride is in that I'm an Israelite, and that's why God's going to save us, by bringing them up as righteous people, he's showing them there's, there's something about faith which transcends, there's something about obedience which transcends your sort of lineage and where you are. The other thing is Noah is not perfect, and everybody knows that Noah is a very flawed character. Daniel is one of the few heroes of the Bible who is almost not flawed at all. At least his flaws aren't told to us. Almost everybody else, we see their flaws. Job, we see his flaws. He gets reproved by God. Noah, we see his flaws. Um, after the flood, he has some pretty significant ones. But here they are. Here are these people. They're righteous. They're doing the right thing. They're trusting God in the midst of judgment. But you know what? They can't do it for you. They cannot trust God in the midst of judgment for you. There's another thing that's interesting to me about Daniel and Noah and Job, and that's that they all come to a place of acceptance of judgment. So for Noah, he has to accept God's judgment before he's going to build the ark. If he doesn't accept that God is going to do this and accept that it's right for God to do this, he's never going to build the ark. He has a hundred years to think about it, to build this ark before the rains come. And it shows from the moment he starts building the ark that he has accepted that God's judgment is coming. He's not fighting it. He's not pretending it's not going to happen. He's well in there. He's building the ark. He's doing what Ezekiel said the Israelites weren't doing. He's building the breach in the wall, so to speak. He's, he's doing what needs to be done to preserve his family. And it's interesting because all the other Israel, all the, not Israelites, all the other people watching Noah at that time, they surely had conversations with Noah all the time. Why are you building the world's biggest boat in the world's driest land? You know, what is going on here? Why, why are you doing this? And he repeatedly must have told them if for no other reason than defend his own sanity, he must have told them over and over because God's going to make a flood and this is how we're going to live. And you know what? Apparently you've got time. Why don't you build a boat too? And none of them did because they weren't accepting God's judgment. Same is true with Job. He rails, he fights, he's kind of fighting against it. But ultimately the point is he accepts God's judgment. He says, I should keep my mouth shut. That's what he says at the end of Job after talking for hours and hours. And then Daniel has done exactly what God has encouraged the Israelites to do. Settle in, be profitable where you are, be a good citizen. Daniel is the epitome of a good citizen, right? He's involved in the government. He's engaged in the activities. He's remaining true to God. And yet at the same time, he's not fighting against the judgment of God in Babylon. And so I think in some ways he's brought up here because he is such a perfect example of what Ezekiel keeps trying to tell them to do. Worship God, only God, but settle in as a good Babylonian citizen, because in doing that, you accept the judgment of God. So I think that's part of the reason he uses that as an example. All right. In this case, though, his point again is you can't, you can't look to someone else's faith to save you. You've got to trust God yourself in the midst of this judgment. And no matter how righteous, no matter how faithful the people are, they can't say, even if it was Noah and Daniel and Job themselves, uh, legendary people. Daniel's already become legendary. The rest of the other two already were as well. They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Or if I sent wild beasts through that country and they leave it childless and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beasts, as surely as I live, live declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they cannot save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword against that country and say, let the sword pass throughout the land and I kill its people and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons and daughters. They alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath on it through bloodshed, killing its people and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, 
Even if Noah and Daniel and Job were in it, they could save, save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. It's, it's like that angel went around and he put the mark on all the foreheads. And it's like, just because dad has a mark on his forehead doesn't mean the sons and daughters will. Doesn't mean that they can bring other people along. Each person is, is responding to God or not. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought on Jerusalem, every disaster I have brought on it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you see the people who are the Daniels and the Noahs and the Jobs of their day, whether, they, they, whether they're rich and not rich, I don't know that any, well, yeah, actually Job was rich, but, but whether they're rich or not, that isn't the point, uh, but famous, you know, whether they're famous or not, they're still, they're the Noahs, the Daniels and Jobs. If they stand in faith, if they look to God and they're spared, then when you see them, you'll see what conduct I'm talking about. You'll see what it means to be faithful to me. You'll see what it, righteousness looks like, and you'll be encouraged that my judgment has been fair. You'll be encouraged that my judgment has been just, and that I didn't just indiscriminately destroy everybody. And so there won't be a lot of them, but when you see them, it will encourage you and comfort you that I know what I'm doing, and that there is a rationale behind it all. Any thoughts on 14 before we go on to 15? So the ones that are going to see it will be Ezekiel, basically. <laughs> well, yeah. Because everybody uh, else is question. gone. I, I think the point may be that there are some exiles that are still in the process of learning that have survived thus far. And so uh, when they see even out of Jerusalem, some of those who survive, it will help them understand a little bit more what they should be doing. Like these elders who seem to be kind of finicky and fickle and trying to play the fence, play, the, play both sides a little bit. But yes, maybe the comforts for Ezekiel. Yeah, <laughs> that could be too. Other thoughts? Well, and both both Noah and Job, I mean, Daniel is obviously like actually in the same situation as the exiles. He is an exile, but yes. Noah and Job also, the judgment took them to a point of like all is lost. I mean, Noah was sure. it in his family and Job lost everything that was important to him. Sure. Um, and except for his wife, which arguably made the situation worse. Her remaining was like almost a judgment in that case. And so it is just, he's, you know, they remained faithful even in that. And then they were restored to like the, the restoration of Noah and his family repopulating the earth and Job regaining all those things he lost. And Daniel, who again was, was obviously a talented, because this is why Nebuchadnezzar took him a talented up and coming right. who seemed to have lost everything also gets that in some ways restored, right? As he settles mm -hmm. into the judgment, he ends up being a very important and influential person. You know, who else has lost everything and remained faithful is Ezekiel, right? He was supposed to be a priest. And now he's out here in the exile talking to people and doing, you know, laying on the ground and eating bad food and trembling and digging holes in walls. I mean, this is not what he thought his life would be. But I think it's in, and I think he would be in that list, but I think God realizes for Ezekiel to put himself in that list and his prophecies would not work, you know, that wouldn't come across well, you know, so, even if I, it, it, uh, seems, here, so. it seems interesting that Daniel is in that list. I mean, has he reached sort of his peak of success and fame? Would they know immediately who that is or? It seems like they must. The fact that he's so, 
I will say this, there are some commentators who believe that, and, and, and the thing is, I think this is reasonable, but I don't think it's Occam's razor. I don't think it's the simplest answer. There are some commentators who believe that what's happening here is that Daniel is a mythical figure, a legendary figure that predates the Daniel we're talking about here, that this is a, a different Daniel. And that perhaps even the Daniel we're talking about is sort of named after that Daniel. It's kind of a long way to go when a simpler answer would simply be, we already know that Daniel has risen through the ranks to become Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. How could every Israelite not be aware of that? right? This is one of your people in an exile who's risen to the top. It's like if we were conquered by Russia and, or let's say China, maybe that's more the issue right now. If we were conquered by China and then, uh, you know, if, uh, if, um, if Charlie uh, rose through the ranks and became second in command and we saw him do it without compromising any of his principles, yet somehow he became second in command to the Chinese emperor um, we would all know it. We'd be like, that's one of ours. Now, we might have questions. I bet there were people who had questions about Daniel's loyalty. I bet there were some people who thought he settled too much. I bet there were some people who thought he must have compromised and given up his, his integrity in order to raise through the ranks like that, because it's super weird that he does. But again, we, we believe it's God. So, But either way, he would be known. And so I think that's why he's in the list. And I, I think he's in the list specifically because he is that example of what Ezekiel's trying to get them to do, which is exactly what Daniel did. Trust God, honor God, don't compromise on God, but everything else, settle in. Be a Babylonian in every way except your worship. Worship God, no one else, but be a Babylonian. And I think we can feel how much tension there is in that message. We can feel why Ezekiel and Jeremiah would be considered by some to be traitors, because it is a weird message. It is saying, you know, become a, just, just give up, just surrender. But the reason Ezekiel and Jeremiah keep saying it is because God keeps saying it. And the reason God keeps saying it is because to God, them settling and accepting Babylon as their leader right now isn't giving in to Babylon it's surrendering to God's judgment. It's saying, well, this is where God has put us. This is the judgment of God. So we're just gonna, we're gonna go with it. But you have to do that without compromising who God is. And that's a hard position to be in. And I think that's why Daniel's in this list because Daniel is the epitome of having done that and done it righteously and done it well. And we'll see that more when we get back to Daniel's story um, a little bit later. But it is fascinating he's in the well, list. And it amazing. It really feels like the, the theme of this is that as part of the judgment, God is trying to teach them and remind them over and over again of the part of the promise that they're the quickest to forget, which is that they will be a blessing to all peoples. That even though they were the chosen, the chosen ones and they were in, they had the super prosperous time where they were like the dominant world force. But that's always been part of the promise was that they would be part of the, uh, or in the world, that they would exist in the world and in those structures and so even as they're being judged Daniel rising through the ranks and helping to run the country it feels like an example of that a reminder of that absolutely I think that's a really good point and the other thing is this is the beginning of God restructuring their identity which which is a huge theme of Ezra and Nehemiah when we get to those stories after the exile and that's that they have they have come to confuse the idea of being God's people with being synonymous with being the kingdom of Israel. And what he wants to do is separate that a little bit and say to them, you can still be my people even if you're no longer the kingdom of Israel. And that's hard, that's very difficult for them to grasp. But Daniel again shows them that. 
right? Daniel's no longer part of the kingdom of Israel. He's part of the kingdom of Babylon, which again has tension in it all over the place. And yet he can still be part of God's people. And you're right. That is part of what God's doing is shifting their identity so that they understand, oh, we can worship God here. Anytime I see here and there, it's hard not to start to sound like Dr. Seuss, but he can worship God here and there and everywhere. So um, that is kind uh, of- Or Grover. Or Grover, yeah. Um, well, and almost the, the reverse in some ways, which is just because you were the kingdom of Israel didn't mean that you were Correct. righteous. It's your relationship with God that makes you righteous, not just your like, title. In fact, that, I'm going to call you the segue queen right now, because that is the perfect segue, segue queen, into Ezekiel 15. Um, because the next objection to the judgment is just this. We are the kingdom of Israel. We are the people of God. You can't judge us. Judge all those other nations. That makes sense. Discipline us now and then, but you certainly, certainly can't destroy us. You can't judge us. We're your special people, which again, to be fair, is all things God has said, right? <laughs> this, is not, this is not completely in their heads. They were chosen by God. They have been a special treasure to them. He's called them that over and over. Um, I just got a message. My internet connection is unstable, but am I still here? You broke up, but I think you're back now. Okay. All right. Cool. What's funny about that message is it usually comes, comes right after, after the problem has resolved because I, it takes. Yep. Yep. I have seen that too. Okay. But here we go. Here's his answer to that objection of how can you judge us? We're the people of God. This doesn't make any sense. Here's what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch from any trees in the forest. All right, before we go into where all this is going, um, I wanna ask you that question. So before we read where, where Ezekiel's going with it, cause he's gonna make a left turn, which I think is really important. And I think he's doing it on purpose to confuse the Israelites cause they have a different picture. But let's start by just asking the question without agenda. So how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch from any tree in the forest? Somebody tell me. It has to be pruned to, uh, for the vine to grow stronger okay so it's usually pruning what else right it has to be pruned for what to happen the plant to become more healthy and okay stronger what is a good strong vine useful for as compared to other good strong branches of like an elk elk not an elk, uh, an oak or an elm. <laughs> well, the branches of the trees are stronger. They are stronger. You can use them to make things, right? You can build things with them. They have stability. Vine's not so much good for that. What is a vine good for? For making baskets. Okay. Weaving into baskets. There's a more obvious answer I'm looking for. What's a vineyard good for? Grapes. Yes, vine. thank you. <laughs> what's, what's good about a vine is the fruit, right? That what right. makes a, a vine significant in the world of branches is not that you can take that vine, and you're right about baskets, but for the moment, let's pretend no one makes baskets. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not about that. It's about, the, it's about you're not going to make a tabletop out of it. You're not going to make a stool out of it. You're not going to make a, a staff out of it. What are you going to do? You're going to make wine out of it. You're going to make, you're going to get fruit from it. That's what's different. Now, there's a reason we're talking about vines. 
And that's because throughout the Old Testament, you guys have probably noticed, we've already encountered it several times, God talks of Israel as being his vineyard or his vine. He often uses that very illustration to say, you are special to me. You're like my secret royal vineyard at one point. He says, you're my, you're my royal vineyard with your royal fruit. Um, and so we see that illustration used throughout scripture. So Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel, is about to use that same illustration and he's going to totally poke a hole in it because I think what's happening is just what Lorraine was saying, that the Israelites are at this place right now where they're saying, we're your special vine. We're your special vineyard. We're your, your rich wine that you like to drink from. You're not going to burn us all up. You're not going to destroy your vineyard. That would be crazy. We're your, we're your profit center. We're your pleasure center. We're, we're, we're the special people. And so Ezekiel's going to take that idea of them being a vine. He's going to turn it on his head. And this is what he says. How is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch from any tree in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it is thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire booth burns both ends and chars the middle, is it useful for anything then? If it's not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? He's saying a vine's useless. Now, when he says that, what they're all thinking is, no, a vine's not useless. It gives us fruit. So what is he saying about Israel? They are a vine without fruit. <laughs> yeah, you may be my special vine, but where's the fruit? What happened? You were supposed to reflect me with your fruit. Now your fruit's all gone. And a vine that has no fruit is more worthless than a branch that has no fruit. Because a branch that has no fruit can become a peg. It can become a staff. It can be used for something profitable. A vine can be thrown in the fire and it's no good. That's it. It's not good whole and it's not good burned. It, so it doesn't matter. It's just worthless. And what God is doing is using this illustration of a vine, which used to be this special, beautiful thing for them. And he's saying, because you have no fruit, you're worthless. So why shouldn't I judge you? You're not going to be any more or less worthless after I judge you. After you burn a vine, it's just as useless as it was before you burned it. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. This is the repeated statement over and over. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the sovereign Lord. So that's just a very short little picture of Israel as a vine without fruit and why therefore it needs to be judged. Any comments on that illustration before we move on to chapter 16? I don't know that this is the point that's being made here, but I know also that uh, like wine grapes grow in adversity. Hmm. They need like the rocky soil and the, some of those dif discipline to grow most effectively. So it's also interesting to compare other plants that don't thrive in adversity to, to Israel at this time. That's interesting. And that goes along with what Sue said at the beginning too, that they also need to be pruned. So there also could be some of that message here too, that the, the adversity and the pruning is so that they will eventually bear fruit again and be God's precious vineyard again. That's interesting. Both, both good thoughts. What are you eating, Lorraine? Only because it looks like ice cream and I want to know. It is ice cream. Oh, I have a, I have a, I could tell it was ice cream even across the uh, Zoom. Here. Oh, well, please enjoy it. I did not mean to call you out. It just made me wish I had some. Okay. 
<laughs> All right, so here we go, Ezekiel 16. So this is fascinating. What we're about to, this is one of the longest chapters. It's gonna go very quick though, because I'm gonna read a lot of it without comment because it's way too awkward to comment too much. And here's why. Ezekiel is about to launch into a metaphor of the entire history of Israel. And the metaphor is as a, uh, an unfaithful bride. All right, but it's much more uh, graphic than that. In fact, here's a couple of quotes about this chapter. Here in the longest chapter, chapter in Ezekiel, the story is told in detail in all its sordid, loathsome characters so that God's infinite abhorrence of Israel's sin may be clearly seen. Listen to this. According to Rabbi Eliezer ben Hechrenus and the Mishnah, this chapter was not to be read or translated in public. <laughs> they weren't even supposed to read it in public, and we're about to do that here today. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, a very extraordinary chapter is this 16th of Ezekiel. A minister could scarcely read it in public. He certainly would not like to explain its metaphors to a general audience. All right, so having prepped you with that, here we go. Let's read it and explain it. <laughs> with apologies to Charles Spurgeon and Rabbi uh, Eliezer ben Hakranus. Okay, the word of the Lord came to me. We've been through Song of Solomon, so we're good. We, we already know how to handle this stuff. Okay. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now you say, how can this be for Jews? Well, again, he's not talking about Jews. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Where was Israel born? In the land of the Canaanites, right? Where the Amorites and the Hittites live. That's what he's saying. You, this is where you came to be. Okay, as a nation, this is where Israel came to be. <clears throat> On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt and wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. God is like, you were nothing, right? <laughs> let's, just, let's just go back to the beginnings. You were nothing. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. It's, you can just imagine Ezekiel just, you know, sharing this story in this sort of graphic detail. I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live, and I made you grow like a plant of the field, and you grew, and you developed, and entered puberty, puberty, and your breasts had formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. So. Where are we in Israel's history at this point, do you think? They're definitely the chosen ones, chosen people. Yep. 
And this, is the, this is the Davidic kingdom, right? This is the moment, yeah. you know, David. Where David and Solomon, and they're in all their glory. And the other nations are like, wow, what a beautiful country. How did we miss them when they were just laying like a baby in their own blood, right? Oh, this is amazing. They're so beautiful and adorned. And why are they beautiful and adorned? Because God made them such, right? Because God rescued them from obscurity and made them something amazing. Okay, so he goes on. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourselves male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your own blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. And at every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals, and aroused my anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughter of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. I'm filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you're the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You're the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. With their worship of their other gods, he's like, you're not even getting anything for it. You know, you're not even smart enough <laughs> to, to get something for it. You're like bribing the other gods to be able to come worship them. And so he has this really disturbing picture of them as a prostitute, of a reverse prostitute. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, Therefore, I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your bounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you and will stone, who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. 
because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things. I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. And you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Uh, you, you, what he's saying is you've proven yourself to just in fact be just like the Canaanites. I, I gave you this land and, and told you the Canaanites were hideous and worshiping other gods. And now I find out you really are just their children. You are just like them, actually worse. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She, had her, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. You've made Sodom look righteous. Sodom, from Sodom and Gomorrah, that he reigned fire on. You made them look righteous in comparison to what you've done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. He's He's a little bit irony here. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. He's like, well, at least you did one good thing. You can bear your disgrace being proud of the fact that you made them look better. <laughs> so good job. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all her neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. So there's a couple of things going on here, and I want to hear your thoughts about this, this extended metaphor. But one thing he's saying is that you wouldn't even talk about Sodom. You used to have this really superior attitude about everybody else. That as I judged people, you used to have this superior thought that, well, we're all better. And he says, but you're not going to think that way anymore because you've been humiliated and you've been laid bare and you've been exposed. And now you see that even the daughters of the Philistines they're like shocked by how bad you are. <laughs> they're, they're like, you're, you're the example of depravity and, and you're going to realize that. And you're going to come to realize that when you do, you're not going to open your mouth anymore. You're going to be more humble. You're going to be more, more you know, less, less, pr less proud and thinking that somehow you're better than all these other people around you. And I will restore you and I will renew a covenant with you, but it's going to be different because you're going to be more humble. 
And when you've received atonement from me, you're now gonna realize that you actually needed atonement and that you're no better than the rest of the nations around you in that regard. So that's part of what's going on here. And, and God is using very intentionally disturbing language, obviously throughout. Any, any thoughts on this uh, interesting extended metaphor? All right. All right, well, let's do 17 and then we'll be done for the evening. So 17 is another picture. So we've got these three pictures in a row. We've got the vineyard or the vine rather. And then we've got this extended metaphor of the history of Israel as a uh, reverse prostitute, if you will. And now we're gonna have another image, which is a, a more pleasing image. This reads like a, almost like a fable, um, interestingly enough. Um, and it's giving us, some, it's got some specific historical context to it. So it's kind of fascinating to see how God is weaving this fable into the history of their, of their nation or what's about to happen. For us, history, for them, it's about to happen. So here we go. The word of the Lord came, came to me, son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. And this is nice because he's going to tell it and then God's going to explain it. Um, and uh, history helps us actually fill in the gaps here as we go too. Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say this to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and fell full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Taking hold of the top of a cedar, he broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to a land of merchants, where he planted it in a city of traders. He took one of the seedlings of the land and he put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. And the vine now set out its roots toward him from the plot where it was planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water so that it would produce branches, bear fruit and become a splendid vine. So to, first, just to make sure we've got the story because it may not be completely clear, there's an eagle there's this beautiful, beautiful eagle and it comes and it grabs the top of a cedar from Mount Lebanon and it carries it to the city of merchants or the city of traders. And it plants this, this what it grabs from the top of the cedar, but it plants it in a really good spot. There's water, there's, there's sunlight and it grows and it's strong and it produces fruit and it's beautiful. And this eagle has done a good job. But for whatever reason, as the plant begins to grow, it, it begins to turn to a different eagle to another eagle that's beautiful. And it reaches out towards that eagle. And it says it reaches out towards that eagle for water, even though it's been planted by the water. And so it's reaching out and its roots are reaching out. It even says, what does it say? The vine now set out its roots towards him from the plot where it was planted. So it's, it's the roots and the branches are all leaning away from the water where it's been planted in the hope for water from this other eagle. Okay, it's a, it's a weird fable, right? Because eagles, why are eagles being the planters in this? I don't know, who knows? Um, well, we may see why eagles are being used in a second, but again, it's a fable. It's just a, it's just a parable in a story. But here's the question that now is posed. So this is the story, this is the setup. And now Ezekiel poses this question about this plant that's grown. It says this, say to them, uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will it thrive? Will it be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. It has been planted, but will it thrive? 
Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the plot where it grew? Why is it going to wither? Because the roots are leaning away from water. <laughs> because the plant is reaching for water where there isn't any, instead of where it's been planted. And as it's reaching out for this water where there isn't any, it makes it very vulnerable. And he says, it won't take a strong man. Anybody can come up and just pull it up. So will it thrive? It's a hypothetical. I mean, that's a, a rhetorical question. No, it will not thrive, is the answer. Okay, that's the story. That's the parable. So you don't have to at all. Does anybody want to take a stab at explaining this parable? But only if you haven't read ahead. If you've read ahead, you've read, you, you'd be cheating. It's the, it's the Israelites turning to other gods, right? It sure sounds like it. And I think that is implicit in the story. Turns out that's not specifically who the eagles are, but that's what I would have thought also just from this reading, because that's what we know they've been doing. Yeah, he's been talking about it for several chapters. So he has. And there is something about that that is true, uh, even in, in the, I think, the more basic understanding. So that's good. And, and kudos to you for at least trying, because that's, that's a bold thing. <laughs> To, to take that risk here in front of this group of smart people here. Anybody else want to try? Both of them aren't, they don't have any opinions, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else have a thought? Lorian does. You can even disagree with Sue. I shouldn't have already said that she's sort of wrong. I should have just said, oh, well, what do the rest of you think? <laughs> no, I definitely would have assumed that it was, that it was exactly what Sue said, um, because also it, it matches really well with Obviously, like she said, everything he's been saying, but specifically that idea of like, you were, you know, you were discovered by God and plucked from, a, you know, obscurity and, and poverty and made beautiful. And then as soon as you had that, you turned to other people with it. So it does seem to match that. But I always, I just think it's funny that he would be like, here's an allegory. And then immediately I'm going to tell you what it means like usually you give an allegory so they have to think on it a little bit so it percolates he's like no i'm going to tell you right away what i'm saying well and here's what's interesting i said sue's sort of wrong but i think she's sort of right and in fact i think we're supposed to sort of think along these lines because it not only reflects what we know it also bears imagery that's similar to like psalm 1 which talks about that as we trust god we're like those that have been planted by the water producing much fruit so I think it's supposed to have some of that. And the reason for that is because when we hear what the allegory does mean, it's surprising. But then if you connect it to the idea that it has to do with God, because what we're going to find out is God is neither of these eagles. That's what's interesting. God isn't either of these eagles. But the fact that we immediately connected in one of these eagles is in fact going to be relevant. I think it is supposed to be sort of a a backhanded way of making us realize something that, again, the Israelites had a hard time grasping. So let's read, and I'll explain what I mean in a second. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say to this rebellious people, do you not know what these things mean? By the way, I think it is possible there is space between these, to your point, Lorian. He may have shared this one day, and then the second day gone out to say, are you still confused? Let me explain it to you. Um, do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, the king of Babylon. So, surprisingly, Babylon is the first eagle, okay? So he's this great plumage, and he's this powerful eagle. It says, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem here is represented by Lebanon. That's surprising enough, but it's the story. And carried off her king and her nobles. That's the tops of the branches, right? It says he took just the top off of the cedar. Okay, and that's what happened initially, right? He went and he took the nobles, took the king, he took Daniel, took these guys, bringing them back with him to Babylon. By the way, Babylon is a city of merchants. Babylon is a city of traders. So it all fits actually really well. 
Then he took a member of the royal family, which, which we know as Zedekiah, and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land so the kingdom would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. Okay, so surprisingly, the first part of the story isn't about God at all, or is it? Hold that thought. But it isn't, it isn't ostensibly about God. It's about the Babylon coming in, taking away the best part of Jerusalem and taking them to Babylon, and then putting the king that's there under a treaty and making him his puppet. But here's what's interesting about that. If that's what the first part of the story is about, then that means that being a puppet under Babylon's leadership is being planted by the water where you can be profitable. This is, this is the surprising part of the story. <laughs> We're supposed to see Babylon, according to this parable, as a fruitful place for Jerusalem to be right now. And, and what happens, and now we're going to see how Zedekiah does not respond to Babylon that way and instead reaches out for a different eagle. So let's hear this. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. So Egypt is the other eagle. And we see that the, the, the Jerusalem is basically being taken care of. It could be a colony of Babylon and survive for the next 75 years till God is done with this, is sort of the implication. And survive with some prosperity, some profit, maybe some law and order will be returned to this really depraved Jerusalem. You know, there's room here, just like Daniel. There was room for him to grow, to blossom, to be fruitful in Babylon. How much more so in Jerusalem, where the temple still exists, it still stands. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to have a problem with them serving and worshiping in the temple. They're the ones who aren't doing it. They aren't interested in worshiping in the temple. It's not, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar told them they couldn't. He left them there in Jerusalem and gave them room. But instead of sort of submitting to this, enjoying the prosperity that this eagle brings them, Zedekiah reaches out to Egypt, which is the other eagle. And in reaching out to Egypt for his alliance, just think practically political terms, does that not make him extremely vulnerable to Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is not going to look at him reaching out to Egypt and go, eh, no big deal. He's going to look at him reaching out to Egypt and go, oh, it's time to uproot that plant. It's time to pull that plant up and get rid of it altogether. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great horde will be of no help to him in war when ramps are built and siege works erected to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant because he had given his hand in pledge and yet did all these things he shall not escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, as surely as I live, I will repay him for despising my oath and breaking my covenant. Hold that thought, we'll come back. I will spread my net for him and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment on him there because he was unfaithful to me. All his choice troops will fall by the sword and the survivors will be scattered to the winds. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Here's the weird message. The weird message is, you made an oath with Nebuchadnezzar. And when you break it, you're breaking your oath to me. This is where the more subtle nuances of the parable and the, the thing that Sue and Lorian brought up kind of come into play. And it's this. God says, when Babylon came and took you, that was me. I am that other eagle. Because Babylon does nothing without my say-so, without my allowance. 
I've told you over and over that Babylon is simply my tool of judgment for you. I've also told you over and over, submit to the judgment, submit to the judgment, dwell in Babylon, live as their puppet, do what you need to do, be willing to let go of your idea that you have to be the kingdom of Israel and trust me, I will restore you to that kingdom. It's not that it's unimportant, but trust me that I can still be in control even when you're responding to Babylon. Submit to my judgment, keep the oath, keep the treaty, keep the covenant, and everything will be well. But you didn't, Zedekiah. You reached out to another eagle. And in doing that, you're not only defying Babylon, you're not only defying Nebuchadnezzar, strangely, you're defying me. You're disobeying me because this is what I've told you to do right now. As surely as I told you to honor the Jerusalem kings when I was king over all of Jerusalem, now I'm telling you honor Nebuchadnezzar and do what he asks as long as it doesn't compromise worship of me or you're going to be violating what I've called you to do. And this correlation between Babylon and God, which God has been making all along, but now he makes it so strongly by making Babylon the eagle. And the other way I think that this is more clear, even for us and maybe for them, I don't know if they have the vision that we can have of the whole Old Testament. We've talked, we haven't for a while talked about this, but as we go through the Old Testament, there have been various types, various sort of images that come up. And one of the ones we've talked about is the flight to Egypt, that throughout the Israelites' history, going all the way from Abraham forward, we see that there's this repeated uh, thing that happens where when people don't obey God, they flee to Egypt. And whenever they flee to Egypt for help from the strength of Egypt, it's almost always, the only one exception to this being a defiance would be when, when Jacob and his sons come to see Joseph in Egypt. I think that's a little different, although even there they're coming because Egypt is, has food. Whenever they go to Egypt for help, for strength, almost always, and even in the case of Jacob and his sons, even though it may have been the right thing to do, it leads to problems. In the case of Jacob and his sons, it led to their eventual 200-year enslavement by the Egyptians. But it always leads to an issue. Abraham flees to Egypt, gets in trouble, even before the Israelites are a thing. And throughout, we always see whenever Israel makes a treaty with Egypt, they get in trouble. And Egypt becomes this sort of picture of any, any idol, any strength, anything that we go to that we think will protect us instead of going to God. And so by using Egypt as the other eagle, it's, it's strengthening the point here that their decision between Babylon and Egypt at this moment is a decision between trusting God and not trusting God. And weirdly enough, it's trusting God to surrender to Babylon. Yes, Jolene, I see your hand, go for it. It reminds me of a quote. I don't remember who, uh, who said it now, but that faith is living without scheming. So that's what I'm reminded of as you're talking about Israel and their various alliances. Yeah. But I think you can understand how complicated this is, right? I mean, Zedekiah, it's, it's, it is and it isn't. The simplicity of it is if Zedekiah were listening to the prophets of God, he would know to just trust God. And he could have had a potentially long and fruitful reign as this puppet king. Maybe it's not everything he wanted it to be. It's not certainly the glory of David, but it could have been something, I think. But but God is saying to him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't accept that. You wouldn't be planted by the water where I planted you. And instead, yeah, you were scheming. Instead, you were reaching out. You were trying to find an escape and a treaty. And it is historically, by the way, this effort to make a treaty with Egypt, who, by the way, you'll notice in this story, 
The first e eagle grabs them and brings them. The second eagle is very passive. It apparently has no interest in this plant, right? The plant's reaching out to the eagle, but the eagle's not coming to the plant. Well, this is true of Egypt too. Israel reaches out to Egypt and Egypt ignores them. Egypt's like, you have nothing to offer us. <laughs> why, why on earth would we make an alliance with you? We're hunkering down trying to stay out of trouble right now, frankly, is where Egypt was at this moment. You know, we're just trying not to get embroiled with Babylon because quite honestly, we know they're bigger and power, more powerful than we are. Why on earth would we help you? You're nobody. And so they reach out. They're totally spurned by, by Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar does get angry. He does say, well, that's that. I tried to give you some leeway, no longer. And he goes in and, and it's shortly after, the, it's, it's after this attempt at a treaty that we do have the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So that's what the parable is about. It's again, that same message, that same uncomfortable message. And I don't know if it's uncomfortable to you, but it is to me. I, I, I can understand the conflict here. You know, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a certain pride of country that, that makes this kind of thing difficult, but that is what God is breaking down for them. You are my people, whether or not you're the nation of Israel. And that has always been connected. And some of that connection was made by God, but they took it too far and they began to think of themselves. They forgot, right? They began to, to take the jewelry and the honors and the, the, the clothing and the beauty that God had given them. And they began to think that it was theirs by right and that therefore they could use it however they wanted. And God is reminding them, no, we, we need to separate the idea of Israel as a nation and Israel as the people of God for a while, about 75 years. Once we've separated that, I'll bring you back. But for now, settle, accept my judgment, accept that you are no longer the nation of Israel and stop fighting for it and just accept that you're my people and be my people, be like Daniel. Daniel recognizes he's probably never gonna go back to Jerusalem in his lifetime. He's probably never gonna again be part of the nation of Israel but he can still be my people and he can still be honorable and faithful to me. And that is the call that he's been making through a lot of these passages in Ezekiel. Then he goes on and says this, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. So now he goes back to the picture, but he changes it. Now he says, I'm going to do it again. All right. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar and birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. What God is saying is this. This isn't the end of the story. I'm asking you to settle. I'm asking you to be content in Babylon. I'm asking you to be part of their kingdom instead of Israel's kingdom for now. But I also want you to know this. When it's all said and done, I'm going to build another kingdom. This was part of, if you think way back now, several weeks, this was part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? That as big as his kingdom was, there was going to come a kingdom that was going to destroy all the other kingdoms and be an unstoppable kingdom. And it was going to be a mountain. And that was God's kingdom, right? And that's what God is saying here. I'm going to build a kingdom. I will take a little shoot and I will produce a mighty cedar from it. And all the birds will nest in its branches. I don't know if you remember, but one of the gospel writers just says, has Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God is. It's like a tree and the birds all come nest in its branches. And that's what he's saying is I'm going to build another kingdom. And it will be the kingdom of God and it will transcend the kingdom of Israel. It will transcend the kingdom of Babylon. It will be my people. This is very much a, 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 a messianic message that I will renew the Davidic kingdom 
but it will be very different from what you've expected. It will be impenetrable, it will be eternal, it will be unstoppable, and I will do it. And even the way he talks about a shoot, it's very similar to Israel, uh, to Isaiah, who talks about uh, a, a sprout from the stump of Jesse, right? Like you've got a, a tree stump, and yet there's something that grows out of it. That's what's going to happen. Israel's like a tree stump. <laughs> They're no longer a mighty flourishing tree, but out of that, God's going to bring the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to build a new kingdom, a kingdom of God, which is going to be very different from, and, and that's what you're looking for. That's what we're looking for, Israel. He says, yeah, I'm going to restore you as a nation, but more than that, even more than that, I'm going to build a new kingdom, and it's going to be bigger than all the kingdoms of the world. It's going to be different than all the kingdoms of the world. And so that's the positive, hopeful, messianic gospel message upon which we're going to end tonight. Any thoughts, any comments on any of these passages before we close for the evening? I love the tree illustration. I love it both here in Ezekiel and I love it in the Gospels too. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is pretty cool. All right. Well, Ezekiel's a lot of things, but he's never boring. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.